religiously illiterate. Despite my best intentions of reading the Bible the summer before classes began, I entered theological school with my greatest feat of biblical knowledge being that I could name the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, I know I have them written down here. <laughs> but somehow I made it through my first two years of seminary without anyone, professors particularly, asking me anything about the Bible. <laughs> then it happened. Women in the New Testament. My fifth and final required Bible class. The first day of class, the professor had us circle up the desks and go around the circle, giving the standard theological resume that any seminarian can reel off in their sleep, name, denomination, year in school. What is the ministry that you hope to pursue? And then, the woman you find most inspiring in the Bible, and why? Like a theological deer in the headlights. <laughs> the circle started just two people to my right. I became disembodied. <laughs> Despite having just taken a course in New Testament the semester before, the only women I could name in the entire book were Mary, mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene. And because she's the only woman I've ever heard of, did not seem like a particularly scholarly response. A reprieve. The circle went in the other direction, away from me. And about halfway through, it came to me. She came to me, the Syro-Phoenician woman. A woman so on the margins that she doesn't even have a name. A woman devoid of power, but secure in her faith and fueled by the love for her child. Let me just review the story that I read a few minutes ago. After a confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus leaves Galilee to travel to the land of the Gentiles, Syrophoenicia, the city of Tyre. Not to bring his message of love and salvation, but to rest, to escape the crowds and the demands on his time. But he can't remain unknown, and this Gentile woman approaches Jesus asking that he cast a demon out of her daughter. Now let's be clear, this woman has no business approaching Jesus. Everything marks her as an outsider. She is of the wrong national origin, Syrophoenician, the wrong ethnicity, Greek, the wrong religion, Gentile. She is of the wrong gender. In that culture, it is simply not proper for a woman to approach a man she is not related to in public. And yet, love and concern for her daughter drives her, drives that unnamed woman of Syrophoenicia to approach this man rumored to be a holy person 
a great healer, and she does so humbly, kneeling at his feet, not brashly demanding her rights, but in supplication and for her trouble, she is rebuffed. Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Folks, I can assure you after a mere four years in seminary and 14 years in parish ministry that that is not a pastoral response. Jesus is saying that what he has, the food of the soul, is for his own people, the people of Israel, and not for foreign dogs. It would be an absurd waste to use it on her or her child. And how does she respond to this harsh rebuke? Does she flounce off in a snit or start yelling or any of the thousands of more violent things that would come to my mind upon being called a dog? No, she frames an intelligent, even witty response that neither contradicts his reality nor seeds her own. Sir, even the dogs under the table get to eat the children's crumbs. Call me what you like, she is saying, but I deserve something of God's love. Jesus responds, for saying that you may go, the demon has left your daughter. Mark certainly knows how to tell a story with an economy of words. Three little words for saying that. And Jesus shifts. A major world religion shifts. In this moment, I would argue, Jesus becomes a universalist and understands that what he has is for everyone. He sees that his message of hope and love is not only for his own people, the Jews, but for all people. And that state of being other does not exclude you from beloved community. There are a number of reasons why this story of protest and reclamation speak to me. But here in the few days before our national elections, there's one particular that stands out among the others. This story teaches us how to fruitfully engage in disagreement. It teaches us the power of respectful listening. It teaches us to speak our love into the universe. In the past few years, many people have asked me the question, how do I engage with people that I disagree with so fundamentally about the things that are most important to be, about my core values. How do we bridge this seemingly intractable chasm of divisiveness that grips our country? This story of the Syrophoenician woman is one entry into understanding that the bridge is built first with open-hearted listening. As Michael Nichols writes in his book, The Art of Listening, few motives in human experience are as powerful as the yearning to be understood. 
The yearning to be listened to and understood is a yearning to escape our separateness and bridge the space that divides us. We're often quick to think that those who don't share our values have no values worth having. I know I frequently think I do not even want to try to bridge that gap with people who hold views so seemingly incomprehensible to me. But really, I know I would be better off if I tried to understand them and tried to make a connection. We've inherited this American myth of self-reliance and rugged individualism, but that is only a small sliver of the story. We may spend the best part of our lives in individual pursuits, maybe the majority. We may delude ourselves that we are self-reliant, but the older I get, the more I feel the foolishness of that. At any age, the greatest joy we have is through connection. We need other people. And we never outgrow that need to communicate what it feels like in the separateness of our own experience. That's why, as Nichols says, a sympathetic ear is such a powerful force in human relationships and why the failure to be heard is so unbearably painful. Nichols contends that the essence of good connection is empathy. And empathy is achieved only when we let go of our own preoccupations, stop formulating our response to what the other person was saying while they're saying it, and just listen. Step into the other's experience. Most failures of understanding, he says, are not based on bad faith or self-absorption, but to the many little defensive reactions we experience when someone else is speaking, especially when the situation is conflictual. Then we don't hear always what is being said because we are triggered to our own fear or hurt or anger by something the other person said. But if we can learn to be better listeners and set, again, set aside our own reaction to hear, then we have the chance to build empathy, to take charge of our response. Taking charge of our responses is something that Jonathan Haidt Roth talks about in his book, The Righteous Mind. Like Nichols, Haidt contends that relationship is predicated on empathy, that we have to be able to understand the other person's viewpoint in order to enter into true communication. We have to establish trust and respect if we expect anyone to listen to us. And that means first understanding that they are not wholly amoral or delusional, but that they have a different set of experiences and moral values. It means understanding 
that while their moral values may be different, they still might be valid. I know that sounds all noble and high-minded in theory, until you think about who some of those people actually are and the things they actually espouse. The sentiment expressed in a New Yorker cartoon is very tempting to me sometimes. In the cartoon, a father explains to his young son that your mother and I are separating because I want what's best for the country and she doesn't. <laughs> sure, some people we might just need to separate from. But there are many others, well-intentioned people with whom we still disagree fundamentally. We cannot assume that what they ultimately want is different than what we ultimately want just because we have different ways of approaching it. There isn't one single moral code in the world or one single way of seeing that world. Each of us may share some moral values while differing in others, but being able to grasp that there is a plurality of moral values allows for the understanding that loyalty, duty, and community form as valid a moral code as do things like fairness and justice for the individual. Grasping that plurality is the basis on which we build understanding and understanding is the basis on which we form connection. Understanding our differences, we can find our commonalities. And that's what's in play at this, in this story of the Syrophoenician woman. The society that Jesus was a part of was concerned about purity, about divinity. The Syrophoenician woman was working from a place of relationship. Nothing was more important to her than the health of her child, and so she was able to step out of her social context of purity and divinity and say that relationship was a stronger value. So by entering into respectful relationship, she created that empathy that allowed her to be heard if I was going to subtitle this story, it would be the day Jesus took it on the chin. He just doesn't start off looking that good at the beginning of the story. Of course, with compassion and historical insight, we see that he was just as much a product of his society as we are of ours. But in contemporary American terms, his initial dismissive response just doesn't fit one who came to be called the light of the world. But here's what Jesus did really well. He listened. He listened to somebody he didn't want to listen to. He listened to somebody he thought had no right to even speak to him. He didn't just let her have her say but he understood what she was saying. He saw the justice of her argument and he let it change his mind. 
For me, that's the greatest lesson of the story. We don't have to get it right the first time, but we do have to listen to others, especially those we don't want to. What Jesus recognized is that insights can come from the outside, that faith can be found there too. It might not be his faith or my faith or your faith. We might decide in the end not to change our mind, but we might. And who knows that it is not in that very quality of relationship when one speaks their truth and the other hears it with an open heart that the world is not changed. I think it's not a bad thing for us to all remember that even Jesus had his bad ministry days. Days when he failed to listen with an open heart. But honest communication and relationship are not things of perfection. It is not that we will never make a mistake. We will. It is about remaining patient and open-minded enough to learn from our mistakes. Learning how to listen gracefully, to come far enough into relationship with the other person, to understand that although they don't believe as we do, that we can't dismiss them for that. It may even be a matter, dare I suggest, of sometimes learning how to lose an argument. These six little verses about an unnamed woman, six verses so rarely preached because they don't make Jesus look good, hold a powerhouse of a lesson. It's a story of protest and reclamation. It's a story of human dignity, of one small voice saying, this will not do, this is not right. It's a story where love changes the world. It's a story that speaks to our tradition as Unitarian Universalists and people of conscience. It's a story that tells us plenty about how to live out that tradition and affirm the inherent dignity of all people. So when asked to name a woman in the New Testament who inspires me, I say the Syrophoenician woman. And oh, there's one more part to that story. Having to name our favorite biblical woman in New Testament class. The very next day was the first meeting of my UU history class taught by the Reverend Dr. John Burens, the immediate past president of the Unitarian Universalist Association. This was certainly not a time to look religiously illiterate. When, Dr. Burens asked, did Jesus become a universalist? <laughs> I believe I might have left the good reverend doctor with the impression that I know something about the Bible. <laughs> Namaste. Por lo tanto, puede ser.